Hi, welcome to season three of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number 15, Free Will, A Church for the Nuns, Forgiveness, Malala Yufshesai, and more are some of the things Lee and Dave talk about today. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, thank you, Candy, for that very kind introduction, as always. This is Dave. And this is Lee. And welcome to our present-day audience. Hi, guys. Our audiences in years, decades, and centuries from now. Our future AI audience. Echo effect. AI audience. To do the echo thing, we probably need to call that out, and I appreciate the way you did that to where people have a chance to prepare for the echo effect and all that, right? Right. Our future alien audience who may be at this point in time here in podcast number whatever, 79 or whatever, like going, don't do the echo. Okay, we don't we don't need that. We don't need okay, that. We understand you. And our universal audience, so glad to have all of you listening and thank you so much for joining us. And we have a warm welcome today to a very special guest, Terry Eklund. Terry, so glad to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. All right. All right. So as we always ask, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? Lee. So let's begin with a discussion of a life tool. You've heard us discuss this previously. We call it fear to courage to love and action. So a question to consider and contemplate and reflect on. Are we more afraid of unnamed fears than we are of named fears? I think we would argue that yes, we are. We may be more afraid initially when we name our fear, but we then quickly become less afraid over time once we have a label on that fear. Yeah, I think this happens all the time, right? A lot of times it may be at a job, something Mm -hmm. new. And we'll have that, for me, it's kind of like a little surge. Right. Yeah. A little anxiety. Yeah, and you have that. And lots of times life is moving so fast, you don't even have time to really go name it. But I think we're seeing a value in trying to quickly go, well, what do I think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what actually am I visualizing that would be so terrible? Yeah. You know? In other words, putting a picture to it, <gasps> which leads to the next point. Oh. Are we more afraid of those fears that are unpictured? than we are of pictured fears. We, again, would posit yes. We may be more afraid initially when we picture a fear, but we then quickly become less afraid of it over time once we have a label and a picture associated with that fear. So visualizing it, labeling it, we think has tremendous power. But if I go visualize it, doesn't that kind of make the fear more real? Could. Sometimes I might like just kind of hanging out and this kind of unnamed fear thing, I haven't really pictured the fear or imagined what it would actually visually look like. If I go picture it and visualize it, God, that might be really scary, you know? Yeah. Or it might not be. It might not be. Yeah. In fact, consider, have you ever had an undiagnosed medical condition? That's really fearful. What the yeah. hell's wrong with me? Yeah. And then when a medical practitioner can give you a diagnosis and put a label to it, a name to it, you don't like it, but at least you go, okay, now I can deal with it. I understand what it is and what we may be confronting. Yeah, and I think some of the challenges with this is we ultimately need to act, right? And we want to act with courage. It's very hard to visualize that act of courage if we haven't visualized the fear. Yes. So it's hard, hard to get to courage if we haven't done the fear piece in a visual setting. And I'd add to that, once we do have it 
identified, there's at least a perception of control. We have some understanding that this is the problem, this is the issue, this is the fear, and now we can start to put together a, a plan of action to put us more in control of that fear. When the naming happens and you visualize it, it, it is that sense of control, and when you get that sense of control or the clarity about it, it starts calming me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, yes. I, you, you feel yourself relaxing and going, okay, very clear what's going on. I see what's in my control. Now I'm ready to go yes. act and mm -hmm. act courageously if yeah. I need to. Yeah. Yeah. But we still are often afraid to name or picture our fears. And sometimes it, it does seem to me like we may wonder if, if it seems better to leave those fears in what we'll call worry land. Worry land. <laughs> worry land. Or an stress, amusement park. An amusement park no one wants to go to. <laughs> yeah, but you get in for free. Yes. <laughs> you know, or just, you know, you have these occasional vague senses of dread. Mm -hmm. Isn't it easier to come up? with courage, with pictured fears than it is with unpictured fears. We yeah. again would say yes. Yeah, the actions become much clearer. I, lots of times that's after the naming of this, you have that deal of, oh, okay, mm -hmm. here's what this is. Mm -hmm. And then you're prepared to go deal with it. So how can we create the habit of naming and picturing our fears so that it's easier to summon up our courage and act with our ideals. And I think a lot of this maybe is, is awareness. You know, when a major worry arises, we recognize it, trail out the options visually about what we might do and see which one visually leaves us in the best place. In this process of doing it and having it become a habit where we confront and deal directly with our fears and worries as they come up, that it leaves us in this place where, as Terry said, we have the best sense of control that we can have, mm -hmm. and we are the actor to determine what is going to go happen. And it also leaves us in a place where we go, well, I am still standing. Yes. What was I worried about? Well, I had these expectations or assumptions about how things were going to go. Whoop, oh, this happened. I got surprised. Well, you know, now once you've decided what you're going to go do, be quick to change those expectations or those assumptions. And uh, I had a, a good friend of mine that used to say in, in situations like this, ride the waves. Mm -hmm. And the waves do come at us. Yes. They hit us, you know. So the ability to cycle through that, particularly to get to that stage of calm, where we always do our best thinking anyway, right? When we're calm and thoughtful as opposed to stressed. And so we thought there was a quote here from... Oh, uh, this dude, he's, he's a Greek dude, you know, Epictetus, Epictetus. I'm sure Epictetus. we're giving him due respect with some <laughs> Greek dude. <laughs> and he had a great quote where he said, if you are ever tempted to look for outside approval, realize that you have compromised your integrity. If you need a witness, be your own. And I think on some of these things, we get concerned where, uh, well, we stay in stress land or worry land because... Sometimes what you have to do in visualizing is show other people your fear. Yes. Show other people your worry, and it becomes more public, and we don't want to do that. And I think his point is just, you're your own witness. Mm -hmm. there's, there's nobody ultimately that you need to satisfy that way, you know, but yourself. So, Terry, it seems like all of this is kind of on the basis of we have all this free will. We have all of these you know, control we can create and all this stuff. It, that's all good. You know, it's really all up to us. Yes. But wait, but wait. wait. 
we have a Stanford scientist after decades of study who is now concluding we don't have, have free, free will. will. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, Tell Terry, us, take us through this cheery news. <laughs> sure. So, Stanford biologist Robert Sapolsky does indeed ponder that question. What is free will? With the publication of his latest book, he tackles the best and worst of human behavior and the nature of justice in the absence of free will. Nathan Collins from Stanford Magazine had opportunity to interview Robert Sapolsky. Robert Sapolsky is a lot of things. A MacArthur fellow who spent, smart, smart dude. who spent years studying a troop of baboons in Kenya. He's a neuroendocrinologist who changed the way we think about stress in the brain. He's an accomplished columnist and writer of popular science books and a professor of biology at Stanford. So quite an impressive resume. Terry, can you please repeat that one humongous word that you so eloquently? Neuroendocrinologist. Wow. Yeah. Kudos to you. Impressive. I, I couldn't have done it. That's why we assigned that part. Come on. <laughs> All right. So uh, recently, Sapolsky's been reflecting on the origins of human behavior, starting deep in the brain, moments before we act, and working his way millions of years back to the evolutionary pressures on our prehistoric ancestors' decisions, with stops along the way to consider how hormones, brain development, and social structures all shape our behavior. He's also been thinking about free will, and he comes to the conclusion, based on the biological and psychological evidence, that we do not have it. Hmm. Stanford News Service interviewed Sapolsky about science, the need to be, quote, behavioral biologists, and what to do about justice if, as he argues, we do not have free will. And we've communicated a picture for justice Yes, that moves from, said very briefly here, moves from punishment to penance. Yes. And talking about that, so it'll be interesting to think about that in the course of this interview. So the interviewer says, you've advanced the idea that we can't understand human behavior by studying it at just one level. That, for example, we can't understand politics without studying neurons brain chemistry without studying psychology, or perhaps even humans without studying apes. Does that mean that we've been studying behavior the wrong way? And he said, scientists thinking about the basis of behavior know that you have to be multidisciplinary. Of necessity, a scientist typically studies one incredibly tiny sliver of some biological system totally ensconced within one discipline because even figuring out how one sliver works is really hard. There are not many scientists who would argue that their sliver is the only thing that should be studied. So I think he's certainly conjuring up for me here the value of system thinking. And you have the concept of adjacency, which is behind a lot of innovation that mm -hmm. you have to understand the thing that's right next to your discipline. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, you may be the one that sees the innovation yes. opportunity. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. So then Nathan also asked, all roads in human behavior seem to lead to it's complicated. Out of the mess of things that combine to create our best and worst in typical behavior, what do you think is most important for ordinary people to know? What about policymakers or other scientists? And Robert responded, I think it's the same for both groups, which is that we're all behavioral biologists. When we serve on juries, when we vote for whether government funds should be spent to try to correct some societal ill, when we deal with an intimate with a mental illness, we are tacitly 
deciding how and how much our behavior is constrained by biology. So we might as well be informed behavioral biologists. And one thing that involves is being profoundly cautious and humble when it comes to deciding you understand the causes of a behavior, especially one that we judge harshly. I'm sure some of our audience is going, another job title? Uh, what do I have to do with this job? Behavioral <laughs> yeah. biologist. How do, you, how do I get that license? Yes. Yeah. Do I, I go to the DMV? Am I going to get paid for that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No. Right. No, you're I, not. I, I am reminded, for those of you who may have participated in debate back in the day, oh, there's yes. a technique called the assignment of motives. And that was to say, well, you stated X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I'm certain that you believe this. Yes. Well, I think Sapolsky is saying, pump the brakes. Yeah. There may be a biological root in our behaviors yeah. and in our beliefs here. Exactly. So Nathan asks the question, what does that suggest about judicial sentencing rules or the death penalty, for example? And Sapolsky responds, well, basically that the criminal justice system is staggeringly out of date in incorporating neuroscience into its thinking. As one flagrant example, the gold standard for determining whether someone is so organically impaired that they can't be held responsible for their criminal actions, the imnotent rule concerning an inability to tell the difference between right and wrong, is based on the case of a man by that name, almost certainly a paranoid schizophrenic from the 1840s. The 1840s. Nathan asks, what are the most important questions that remain? And Sapolsky responds, for me, the single most important question is how to construct a society that is just, that is safe, that is peaceful, all those good things when people finally accept that there is no such thing as free will. Used to be a famous comedian named Flip Wilson. One of his routines, the, the character that he would portray would always end up saying, the devil made me do it. Mm -hmm. The devil made me do it. And kind of that notion of, you can't hold me accountable for anything. I think it is interesting to think about, if we're going to use the word accountability, does that have to turn into punishment? Can you be accountable, but then go, say the justice path is to penance as opposed to just, we're just going to punish you. And which then leads people to kind of go, well, how can I, if it's just always going to be punishment, how can I get out of being accountable? And that's, that's not a good way for us to go, is it? Yeah, I yeah. Like it's it. an unvirtuous cycle, right? Yeah. 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 So in previous podcasts, we've discussed penance represents education. Right. Hey, let me learn, okay, and improve. Punishment can do that, but to a far lesser extent. And penance tries to get tied to, we'll say, the victim or whoever was harmed and trying to, in some fashion, have the actions that the, we'll say, perpetrator takes, try to recover mm -hmm. goodness for the person that got harmed as opposed to, no, we're just going to take you off over here and punish you. Right. You know, yeah, there's nothing in it for the victim. There's nothing no. in it for the victim. Yeah. yeah. So Nathan also asked, that's a tall order given that philosophers, let alone politicians and activists have trouble deciding what justice and free will mean. Robert's response, a tall order indeed, because words like justice, punishment, accountability become completely irrelevant as irrelevant as if a car that has damaged brakes and is dangerous to drive is thought to be accountable for being dangerous and that justice is served when the car is punished by locking it up in a garage and not driven. 
And it's equally important and challenging to realize that free will is also irrelevant to our best as well as our worst behaviors. And thus, where praising seems as irrelevant as praising a car for having a strong work ethic, an admirable gratification postponement when it makes up the top of a steep road. Or if you give a car preferential treatment if it was manufactured with a really attractive hood ornament. Woohoo! <laughs> yes, a very tall order, and I'm not sure if it's achievable. Yeah, we, we lots of times in this accountability and, and punishment thing or whatever, we, we go to judgment, right? And, and so much of another concept that we've talked about of equality for all really says, you know, we, whatever is happening to us, whatever we're doing, we are still equal in value and worth. And lots of times accountability, punishment, or we have free will and you, you did this, you did this takes us to, well, now I'm free to judge you. And now I can judge you as being less than Mm -hmm. if I don't (laughs) like you. And so that that takes us down a really bad path, I think. Well, it's interesting to me also that, in this last last quote from Robert, it's not just the punishment aspect, it's also the praise. That are we, do we really have free will when we praise someone for some achievement or some goal that they have reached? Yeah, similar to the punishment aspect, the, the praising aspect to me, it's, it's just an interesting, I, because we've just, at least I have just been trained that that's part of human nature. Someone does something good, um, a kid, a coworker, whoever, you want to offer some type of encouragement or reinforcement of that behavior. There's an increasing number of things that I think we've come across that suggest that we have these inputs coming into us that we don't even realize we do. We, I think we had a deal recently where we talked about alternative versions of ourself are helping us problem solve. And it's like, well, I don't know who, who, who those guys are, you know, and they're, and I think it, to me, it's like, we can, we can have a lot more input coming in, which would suggest you don't have free will that we don't yet understand or know. But I think the key question then becomes, yeah, in some fashion though, are we still making some choices? And it may be that we're turning our eyes toward a certain set of sources that we don't understand as opposed to others. And I think I would go, I, I agree that there are sources we don't understand, but uh, I would absolutely disagree that in some fashion we don't have choice. I just, in my heart, I feel like we do. So with respect to Dr. Sapolsky, uh, it's a bridge too far for my understanding right now. And I'm with you. I, I conditioned in 68 years of living to believe that, hey, I exert determination. I exert enthusiasm. I exert anger. It's all my choice, right? To behave well or to behave badly. I think I have some dim notion that there's some neurochemical biological things that support and underpin that. But for me, it's still consciousness that rests on top of all of that. We have those of you in the future, lots of times in movies and things, we have this depiction or just in life, we have this depiction of an angel and a devil. They're yes. sitting on opposite shoulders and mm-hmm. one's going, go do this. And the other one's going, no, don't go do this instead. And that to me is like a stand in for, or do we have these voices? Do we have these things we don't understand that are coming in? Yet you always then have the choice about which voice or voices to. you're listening to and then act upon. So fascinating though. We always it like sharing stuff like yes. this. That's awareness. And this dude is 
very bright. Yeah, very yes. credible. And yeah. has been studying this for decades, mm-hmm. and it's like, I, I don't dismiss it. I is, don't there, dis- is there correct. something here? I do not discredit it in the least. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, spirituality and community. And those are big topics for us. We've talked about the idea of love first, community of caring, all of those types of things. We even have a ICE model that we've put forward where you can try to understand who your more immediate community is and where you stand with them to make all of that work better for you. And we came across a very interesting article, and it's by Perry Bacon, and it's from August of this year in the Washington Post, and it's called, I Left the Church and Now Long for a Church for the Nuns. Let's spell nuns. N-O-N-E-S. Not people who wear habits. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and uh, read excerpts from this article and have some chatting about it. So Perry starts off, I'm currently a nun, or more precisely, a nothing in particular, but I want to be something. Nun is the term social scientists use to describe Americans who say they don't belong to or practice a particular religious faith. This block has grown from about 5% of Americans in the early 1990s to nearly 30% today. We'll say that that is remarkable. That's a remarkable change. Back to the article. Most nuns aren't atheists, but what researchers call nothing in particulars, people who aren't quite sure what they believe. In their new book, The Great Dechurching, Jim Davis, Michael Graham, and Ryan Burge estimate that about 40 million Americans used to attend church but don't now. I could not have imagined when I was a kid or even a decade ago that I would be in this group. During my childhood in Louisville, my father was one of the assistant pastors at a small charismatic church that my uncle still runs. Our family was at church every Sunday. Members often stopped by our house during the week to get advice from my father. His way of teaching me to drive was sitting in the passenger seat as we went to the midweek Bible studies he led. Before I left for college, the congregation passed around a collection plate where they gave me several hundred dollars to congratulate and support me in my new adventure. And we're going to start a thread here about the idea of community and the idea of spirituality and the idea that we look for both of those. Almost all of us look for some type of spiritual expression, which may be within a formal religion or not, Mm -hmm. or both. And we also are looking for community, a community of caring and all of that. And I think that one thing that we've certainly been thinking about as we looked at this article is the degree to which, as as those of us here in the room on the podcast uh, are thinking about our own growing up years, how in a lot of cases the options for looking for community were much more limited than they are today, and the options for spiritual expression were much more limited than they are today. And lots of times what we were taught was you go to the same place to look for both. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. go to a church to find your community, Community. and you go to a church to express yourself spiritually. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a bit different today in terms of the multitude of choices that people have for both community Mm -hmm. and spirituality. So uh, back to the article, once on campus, I attended church more than my peers, but in my 20s and into my 30s, I developed a religious life that wasn't based on my father's. I was a member of a few non-denominational churches. That's indicative of something that didn't exist earlier. 
true. in his life. Right. And you now yeah, have true. these yes. non-denominations. There's more choice. Yep. More choice. So I was never real, totally confident that there is one God who created the earth or that Jesus Christ was resurrected after he was killed. But belonging to a congregation seemed essential. I thought religion, not just Christianity, but also other faiths such as Judaism and Islam, pushed people toward better values. So the churches I attended avoided politics, but I wasn't out of step with them ideologically. Women served as pastors, and there wasn't any overt opposition to, say, gay rights. I suspect they were full of people who voted for Democrats. My childhood church in Louisville is overwhelmingly black. The churches I attended as an adult are in the heavily left-leaning D.C. area and had a lot of attendees who worked in government and in nonprofit jobs. The weekend after President Trump was elected in 2016, I remember one of the pastors declaring in his sermon that our church would remain a place that welcomed refugees and other immigrants. Everyone clapped. But in the years after Trump entered office, left-leaning Gen X and older millennial Americans in particular abandoned church in groves, according to Burge, a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University, and he's an expert on the nuns. And I, the writer, I eventually became part of that group. I can just imagine that people left because of one or both of these two reasons. The community piece just isn't serving me. I want a different community that, again, kind of takes care of my community needs. And also the spirituality piece or religion subset of that just... Mm -hmm. I'm not, it's not resonating with me. Yeah. Or I have a different form of expression, and there's all sorts of places out there and ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I wonder, too, if as part of that change, people started to question the, the values that their chosen church demonstrated or the values that were becoming more prevalent in many religious communities. And as those became a little more public, uh, whether formally or informally, people started to understand that the values that they that they profess just don't match that religious community anymore. Yeah, yeah and almost yeah. E and almost every to your to your point, almost every uh, denomination or religion politics does. Certainly does absolutely today. comes into play how something has gotten interpreted or what that means or mm -hmm. in the case of Christianity. We'll pay attention to these parts of the Bible now and ignore these other parts of the Bible. Yep. And politics absolutely has influenced that. Back to the article. I didn't leave church for any one reason. Inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, I was reading more leftist black intellectuals. Many of them either weren't religious or were outright skeptical of faith. I started to notice that there were plenty of people, black and non-black, who were deeply committed to equality and justice, but were not religious. At the same time, my Republican friends, many of whom had been very critical of Trump during his campaign, gradually became more accepting and even enthusiastic about him. While my policy views had always been to the left of these friends, our shared Christianity had convinced me that we largely agreed on broader questions of morality and values. Their embrace of a man so obviously misaligned with the teachings of Jesus was unsettling. I began to realize that being a Democrat or a Republican, not being a Christian, was what drove the beliefs and attitudes of many Christians, 
perhaps including me. We know how each other stands, and it's the Grand Canyon. You know, what is Christian? What is Christianity? And the two sides have very different ideas about what that even is. Back to the article. Finally, something happened at church itself. One of the men who had been in the church group I hosted had sought to lead one himself. But a church higher up told him he could participate in church activities, but not lead anything because he is gay. I had not realized the church had such a policy. I learned that my church would also generally not conduct weddings for same-sex couples. Hmm, and I wonder if they had previously. Hmm. Article continues. So between early 2017 and early 2020, I went from someone who clearly defined himself as a Christian and attended the same church most Sundays to someone who was not sure about Christianity but was still kind of shopping for a new religious home and going to a service every few weeks. I was not fully comfortable with the idea of vetting churches by their views on policy issues. I had never really done that before. Parenthetically, he writes, perhaps I should have. Your experience is very typical, said Daniel Cox, who is a director of the Survey Center on American Life. Most people who disaffiliate do not cite a single precipitating factor. It's more of a fading away from religion rather than a dramatic break. It's not fading away from spirituality. And we, you know, religion and spirituality are the no, same. No, they're not. No. So on this front, the pandemic, the author writes, was kind of a relief. Churches were mostly closed. I couldn't continue my half-hearted search for a new one. I watched an Easter service online in April 2020 during the early stages of the pandemic. But over the past two years, I've been to church only a handful of times, even skipping Easter services. What has kept me away is having a child. If I were childless, I think I would join a church to be part of its community, and I would ignore the theological elements I'm not sure about. But my three-year-old is getting more inquisitive every day. I don't want to take her to a place that has a specific view of the world as well as answers to the big questions and then have to explain to Charlotte that some people agree with all of the church's ideas, dad agrees with only some, and many other people don't agree with any. I know I'm missing out on a lot, and I worry about denying my daughter the church experience. I try to be a nice person, but weekly reminders and being part of a group that's also trying to act in a compassionate manner are helpful. I know I could be a member of a congregation if I really wanted to be. I could attend a Christian church on Sundays and teach my daughter about other beliefs the rest of the week or make church going something that I would do alone. I've also thought about starting some kind of weekly Sunday morning gathering of nuns to follow in my father's footsteps in a certain way or trying to persuade my friends to collectively attend But I've not followed through on any of these options. With all my reservations, I don't really want to join an existing church, and I don't think I am going to have much luck getting my fellow nuns to start something I start. My sense is that people who want what church provides are going to the existing Christian churches, even if they are skeptical of some of the beliefs. And those who aren't at church are fine spending their Sunday mornings eating brunch, doing yoga, or watching Netflix. Community. Community. It's it's people who are going, I went to this place for both spirituality or religion and community. Yes. The community thing ain't getting met. 
mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm going out eating brunch yep. or doing yoga and the spirituality thing isn't getting met. So I'm doing yoga. If I'm going to have a community experience, it has to meet my needs. Yes. The Saturday farmer's market in my neighborhood, the writers, and a weekly happy hour of Louisville area journalists provide some of what church once did for me. Consistent gatherings of people with some shared values and interests. Community. Yep. I've made new friends through both, and there are plenty of other groups and clubs I could join. But none of those gatherings provide singing, sermons, and solidarity all at once. As a middle-aged American in the middle of the country, I don't think that hole is just in my imagination. Kids need places to learn values, such as forgiveness, while schools focus on math and reading. Young adults need places to meet a potential spouse. Adults with children need places to meet with other parents and some free babysitting (laughs) on weekends. Retirees need places to build new relationships as their friends and spouses pass away. People need community. We agree. So back to the article. Our society needs places that integrate people across class and racial line. There are a lot of organizations trying to address those needs, but strong churches could address them all. That isn't some fantasy or nostalgia. Many Americans, including me, were once part of churches that were essential parts of our lives. I can easily imagine a church for the nuns. It would need a more appealing name. I love that he says that. It would need a more More appealing appealing name. name. Start the service with songs with positive messages. I like it. Have children do a reading to the entire congregation and then go to a separate kid service. Love it. Yep. I love it. He's kind of describing his ideal Mm -hmm. community slash spiritual experience. It's a picture. Yeah. It's it's a a picture picture of what he thinks would be the ideal experience. Reserve time when church members can tell the congregation about their highs and lows from the previous week. I love it. We used to call it sunshine and shadows. Yeah. Oh. Youth group. Yeah, it's yes. community. Yeah. We talk, we share. We all support one another. Yeah. Listen as the pastor gives a sermon on tolerance or some other universal value. Mm-hmm. While briefly touching on whatever issues are in the news that week. <laughs> briefly. He, had, briefly. Just, he has such a specific picture. I yes, love it. Yes, he does. You know, and that's great. A few more songs. The more end. More songs. An occasional post-church <laughs> brunch. Yes. And it would all take 57 Coffee minutes. Coffee and donuts. Yeah. <laughs> I think one then of the things. you're yoga. Yeah, exactly. We, we have expressed a picture for spirituality and uh, we've called it Love First or the Love First Movement, where part of our picture has been that everybody around the globe that just said love is the most important part of their spirituality, their religion, their faith, whatever you want to call it, love is the most important thing, would recognize each other. And you would have some kind of global community that everybody recognizes as being a love first community. Then what happens after that, we're silent about. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. how that gets expressed is is up to people and... Oh, by the way, that doesn't discount your religious beliefs. No. It just says, this is first. Let's yeah, just all mm-hmm. recognize it's first, or all of us that agree with that. And we've kind of speculated, if you just propose that question, I bet you'd get 60 or 70% of the globe to say, well, yeah. Sounds right. Well, that's pretty dang powerful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Know? So that's our picture. Yes. The other things he describes, man, I'm with the singing, love kids doing readings, yeah, I love the, what did you say, sunshine and sunshine shadows? Sunshine and shadows. Yeah, that's cool. I think, truthfully, it's wonderful that he puts out a picture so he's clear about what he's looking for. Absolutely. And what he'd like. It, that's it's a, vividly described. That is a great mm-hmm. thing. Back to the article. 
During the week, there would be activities, particularly ones in which parents could take their kids and civic-minded members could volunteer for good causes in the community. I don't expect the Church of the Nuns to emerge. It's not clear who would start it, fund it, or decide its beliefs, but it should. And personally, I really, really want it to. Theologically, I'm comfortable being a nun, but socially, I feel a bit lost. I really hope in a few years that Charlotte and I are something in particular. And that's the end of the article. With all my heart, I hope this gentleman is able to find what he's looking for, I both in the way yes, of yes. community and in the way of spirituality. Yes. Yeah, and we're all, we're all on the search for both. It never ends yes. mm-hmm. in terms of even if it's both of those are great, there's tweaks, there's new things to learn. Mm-hmm. The journey without end, and we certainly wish him all the luck and blessings and, in the world. And thank him it. for his great discourse uh, about this topic. Yeah, yeah, and putting himself out there. Because there are millions of people feeling the same things exactly. and maybe Tens couldn't put a label on their fear. Exactly. So we wanted to raise up a quote here from Malala Yousafzai. I raise up my voice, not so that I can shout, but so those without a voice can be heard. And just as the authors of these two articles that we've gone through today have raised their voice. We all need to use our voice for our community, for the global community, and so that we can reach other people and use the voice for those that cannot be heard. We like to close with a moment of optimism, momentum, and gratitude. So with that in mind, we are grateful for a picture for spirituality and the Love First movement that in time we could all choose to be a part of. We're grateful for an ideal of we're the same and we're unique that includes everyone with equality and respect. We're grateful for life tools like the community of caring and the ICE ICE model that allows us to see where we stand with other people in our lives and then to act to make those connections better and stronger. And we're grateful that we have a voice, a voice that we can use to speak and then to act toward a better life for ourselves and a better world for everyone. And we are grateful for Terry having you here with us today. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Yeah, enjoyed it. So in closing, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? And what is your influence to use? Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about pictures out there at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures.